Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Mm. My name is Josh Rapoon. I'm your host. And this morning, we're here with Chris Stapleton, who is the principal at the Asia Pacific International School in Haula on the north shore of Hawaii, of Oahu, which um, is a 97-acre campus, and it's nestled up against the mountains on Oahu's north shore. Mm. How about that for, uh, for a lead-in? Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, and it's as nice as it sounds. Awesome. Um, so, Chris, we're doing a, a format now in season one, semester two, that I'm calling 10 questions. Mm. So you and I are going to work through 10 questions together. Uh, we'll do it in two parts. So we'll take a little break in between. Um, and so I'm going to start with question number one. Sure. So, Chris, um, the classical academy um, where you worked for two years has become the largest brick and mortar K-12 public charter school mm. in the state of Colorado. Oh, wow. Sure. So the question is, what is the Classical Academy, and in what ways did your experience there shape your philosophy of education going forward? Yeah, uh, that's that's certainly true. In fact, when I was there at the Classical Academy, they had a, a waiting list of 8,000 students. People, when uh, their child was born, was putting them on the waiting list to get into the school. Uh, of course, one of the reasons for that is... Uh, kind of the religious nature of that area of Colorado uh, and what that school stood for, but also because that school wouldn't allow for more than 20 students in a class. So they mm -hmm. did have a cap and um, and so it, it was very popular. Uh, and it was based on a classical approach of, you know, reading, writing, uh, arithmetic, and uh, more, I don't know, traditional way uh, curriculum, such as um, the Spalding method, uh, for teaching, spelling, and um, it was an interesting time because me having come out of an education program in Illinois, uh, graduated it from Wheaton College, and uh, going to the Classical Academy, um, I had a certain passion and energy and excitement, and I was, I was, I'm, a, I'm a fairly creative person, but I love technology, and here I was thrown into the school where uh, that wasn't necessarily the forte, the strength, the, mess, the mission and vision of the school, uh, and yet um, because of the size of the classroom uh, and because of, I don't know, the people around you, you know, I, I, was I was encouraged, I was inspired to allow for those, those uh, strengths of mine to come through, even though I dived into classical literature, which I found to be very important 
uh, mm. culturally for our students to understand as they were making references in future poetry or songs or other literature. It was like, oh, we had read this text that we knew exactly what that meant once we read something that was a little bit further down the road. So. Um, it was a good experience. It was, uh, I'll have to be honest, my first day there, I walked in, said, can I have my class list? And they said, we don't hand it out to students. So uh, I guess without my beard, uh, you know, I'm not Chris Stapleton, the country <laughs> singer, but I will say I must have looked really young because they thought I was uh, a sixth grader at that point. Uh, and, uh, but it was, it was a great learning experience. I spent two years there before transitioning over to Rock Room in elementary school, which was an IB PYP school, uh, which I would say I learned much more about education there uh, than I did the first two years at the Classical Academy. But it was a great experience. So so perfect segue into question number two then, which is um, as an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado, yeah. um, you taught courses in education technology. Yeah. So the question is, like, how do you how do you define for those people who are listening to this podcast? Mm. How do you define education technology, and what were your goals and aspirations for your students in your ed tech courses? Yeah, it was it was really important for um, I don't know. I was really frustrated that as a third year, fourth year teacher uh, who loved technology and grown up in this really golden age of everything at my hands uh, that. Um, you know, I was I was publishing some of the earliest YouTube videos, right? I mean, mm. 2005, I was in college and I was publishing, you know, publishing YouTube videos uh, right when it came out. You know, I was one of the earliest adopters of Facebook, you know, so like I was right there at that time. And when I got into the education world, it was like, it felt like every, every month I was learning about something new and then people were trying new things all the time. And there was so much that was just coming down the pipeline. And I was like, whoa, whoa, stop. There are effective and there are ineffective. Mm. And what's effective for me might not necessarily be effective for you. Uh, it depends on your level of comfort using this and how often you'll use it, but it's about commitment. It's about sticking to something and using it well, rather mm. than using so many different things. Mm. Uh, and that's really where I, I was able to bring that into my classes at the University of Colorado. Uh, we started keeping blogs, uh, me and my students, of like what we used really well in our classrooms. So so that we could then uh, keep track of that for future years because I even now reference my own blog from then uh, to just uh, to go back to like, hey, I used this resource. What was it? Oh yeah. And I go back and I look exactly at how I used it. And instead of just looking through, I mean, you could just type in wow. AR education and you'd find so much on augmented reality. And I'm like, what was that one resource I used over and over again with my students to build pop-up books so that when we looked through phones, we would see the AR images that popped up or we'd hold up a QR code and on the projector, there'd be these fake trees and birds flying around and everything else. And we brought to life our stories based on this one AR website. And I was, I was really excited about it. So <laughs> you can see I'm, I'm one of those people who loves it, but I'm all about like stay focused, stay committed, find something that works and stick to it and maybe the next year with a new class you can transition over uh, but I so quick so quick side tangent question yeah sure so this is so cool because for me and I was already a kind of a veteran teacher yeah. same time 2005 yeah. 2006 yeah. I also kind of exploded into the YouTube channel mm -hmm. I was going one-to-one -one in my classroom with yeah. MacBooks and yeah. so on and so forth um, Chris I have a theory that right around that time 
we all went collectively insane around ed tech. And that we became so mad and crazy about this Mm. that we started to think that technology was the end Mm. and not a means to an end. Mm. And then somewhere a few years later, Mm. we kind of regained our senses and put technology back in the box where it belongs as a tool. Mm. And we went back to pedagogy, which Mm. is the heart and soul of teaching. What do you think about that theory? Yeah, I think I think it's true. I think um, to some degree, uh, we give too much credit to our students for where they are with technology, though. I think uh, there's this idea of this native versus this uh, person who's learned it, and right. um, they call it a digital native. Digital native, yeah. uh, and yeah. I I kind of like my students, our students at our school. They yeah, sure they're on their phone and things like that, but. They don't know how to use technology well just because they're on their phone or their computer. Right. Uh, there's a lot of things that still need to be taught about how we use technology well and responsibly, effectively, how to be able to tag search real quick. I can find many things just because I know a little bit of something. Uh, so like, I still think it's really important uh, that technology continues to be taught explicitly within courses uh, somewhere along the lines. It needs the people need to be using technology effectively mm-hmm. in their classes to show students what it's capable of mm-hmm. and also teaching those students how to use that technology. Otherwise, I'm worried that we're just assuming that students know more mm-hmm. than they actually do. And when they graduate and aren't able to figure out certain things, it's like, well, who taught it explicitly? We used to, but it's kind of put on the back burner. Fair point. Okay, so question number three then. Um, eventually, you moved to Seoul, South Korea, and began to teach at the Asia Pacific International School. So you taught middle school and you did tech integration. So the question is for all, for all of our listeners out there, what is an international school? And what were the highlights and success stories of your tech integration while you were at Asia Pacific? Sure, an international school is a, a private school taught overseas with an uh, English-speaking curriculum. Um, it's uh, been accredited by an agency that allows for students to be able to graduate from that school and move to uh, colleges, universities in the West. Uh, uh, so there's international schools all over. Uh, and in Korea, it's special because uh, the Korean government has put pl- in place certain rules in the past decade uh, that has limited how many Korean students can uh, go straight into international school. Uh, they have to, for instance, uh, certain rules like three years abroad, or uh, they have to have a, cer- a certain passport, or you know, there's certain expectations. So uh, what happens is many Korean students will be sent over to another country to because education is so important in Korea or any Confucius country, uh, it's they'll be sent over to another country for three years or get different time abroad and then head back to Korea to be able to go into that international school system, okay. uh, which is pretty competitive. While I was at Asia Pacific International School, which is a school of 300 students founded in 2007, uh, with the same mission and statement that I have now at my Hawaii campus, um, I was given a lot of autonomy. I was given uh, they, it was progressive. It had great, up-to-date, modern curriculum. It was uh, it was exciting, and one of the one of my favorite things I did was I brought Minecraft EDU into the classroom as a middle school teacher. Um, I taught ancient civilizations, and uh, during that time, 
I was able to, uh, I got all my 20 students on computers. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a one-to-one -one laptop ratio. And so the students would get on Minecraft and we would build the ancient civilizations. And I used that tool to then make commercials and teach advertisement and teach marketing through it. I used that tool to, to, to um, to teach uh, speaking and listening skills. Um, I use that, uh, that tool to specifically also teach the content. So it was what would be at the center of those civilizations? Well, that tells us a lot about that civilization. What would they farm? How, where would the farming be? Where would the different classes of people live? Uh, what kind of nature is around that? And they would be a part of that building process. And then at the end of the year, we would have one giant map with all these civilizations on it. Uh, and we would have at our end of year party, our EOI party, was about a giant treasure hunt that was a competition where they had to find specific <laughs> treasures all over this Minecraft world uh, that were based on the ancient civilizations that they had created. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So, so, so two things real quick. One, okay, the top of my head just blew off, okay? So I'm trying to imagine that kids are getting engaged because they're creating commercials for the Roman Empire, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah you're exactly. Just, right. Like, what would those commercials look and sound and feel like yeah. for the Roman Empire? So that's one thought. Like, yeah. wow, fantastic. Fantastic. I was, I'm also reminded um, there's an amazing teacher here at Punahou School, mm. Doug Kyung. Mm. Um, he invited me up to campus to see what he was doing with Minecraft, and yeah. I did not know Minecraft mm. at that point. So what he'd done was he'd created a project where all of his 15 students had to create a school of their dreams from scratch mm. using Minecraft. Yeah, and sure. he did it on separate islands. Sure. So there yeah. were 15 islands, and your school was built on your island. Yep. So he was showing this to me as these schools mm. were being constructed. And while we were looking through the screen, it started to rain. Yeah. And I was like, wait, yeah, that's what? Important. It rains sure. in Minecraft? Like yeah. you have to take the weather yeah. into account? He's like, oh, yeah, of course. So at that moment, then I realized really what the power yeah. of ed tech could be. Yeah, and if you're selling, if you're selling an ancient sieve, you're going to take the video at dusk as the sun setting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's the most beautiful time of day to get good shots of your uh, of your city, right? Oh. So you have you have farmers coming oh, in yeah, from yeah, their yeah, work, okay. and the sun's setting in the background. It's like this is how you're selling your place. <laughs> okay, so, so we should stop this podcast, and we we need to start a company, <laughs> an advertising company, and you and I are going to make commercials for ancient civilizations so, that are long dead. Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds, sounds that sounds great, actually. So. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Um, but so, so really what I'm, I'm bringing this up because um, if I was in the classroom today, I wouldn't do that anymore. Um, I think it was effective for many years. Uh, Minecraft is now everywhere and everyone's playing it and it's great. And when I brought it, when I brought it into the classroom, it was, it was very trendy and fad and like it would have lasted for three or four years, but now I would be in VR. Uh, I think right now we have a computer science uh, grad from UCLA who's teaching at our school, and he is making VR games on SideQuest that can be on Oculus Quest. He has one right now. Uh, I'm an Oculus Quest user myself. I think this is exactly where we need to be right now. Uh, I think the Oculus Quest is a very powerful device, uh, and we are only touching the surface of how we can use it. And I think uh, students need to be there with mm -hmm. us because yeah. that's where we're at right now in technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's what I would be diving into with my students. So Chris, that's a perfect segue into question number four. Um, so before we dive into your arrival in Hawaii, I want to talk about Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, yeah. which you read and cited as influential. And by the way, side note, uh, I learned in doing a little bit of back research on, on my own reading of A Whole New Mind that Oprah Winfrey distributed copies of Pink's book to Stanford's entire graduating class in 2008 when she did the commencement speech. Sure. So 
Um, many people know that Pink was arguing for a new workout regime mm. for the so-called right brain, mm -hmm. um, the creative, innovative, imaginative brain. And mm -hmm. he argued that the computational brain, as in, for example, being an attorney and drawing up divorce papers, was being rendered obsolete by mm -hmm. computers, by AI, yeah. by the workforce in mm -hmm. Asia. Um, so question is, how did Pink's scholarship impact you as a person, as an educator, mm. and as one of Hawaii's emerging education leaders? Yeah, I think um, a number of ways. We, we often couple it with uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset. Um, but it's really at the heart of the mission of our school, per se, which I am absolutely buying into, which is that uh, abundance Asia and automation uh, transfers, like transforms uh, our education. It should. Uh, and it's because, uh, so if you look at our mission, which you probably will reference later, but our mission statement, which has caring Christian community, has globally enlightened citizens, has bridging East and West, and then has new Pacific century leaders, uh, you'll see that, uh, wow, isn't that what Daniel Pink's book is all about, which is that uh, we need to have students who understand the East and what's going on there uh, and how abundance is growing here and that stu these students need to be able to design. They need to be able to tell a story. They need to be able to have that empathy and be able to work with others. Uh, and when we then said, okay, so what makes a new Pacific Century leader? At the heart of it, when we were looking at what we're gonna emphasize at our school, we used Daniel Pink's book, The Right Side Brain Idea of, hey, we need to be focusing on the arts. We need to be looking at East Asian languages and culture as a major emphasis in our, our school, which is why we offer Korean, Japanese, and Chinese at our school. And it only has 65 students at our school, which is amazing that we offer those languages. Uh, we said, hey, we gotta continue to focus on STEAM, right? STEAM education and understanding the technologies of today, but also uh, how we're developing uh, scientifically. And then also, um, finally, we have that caring Christian environment, which uh, that helps bring an understanding of empathy and selflessness. When I was at a Learning in the Brain conference, man, I guess it was 2010 or 11, mm -hmm. uh, Howard Gardner was there, and uh, he had just published Five Minds of the Future in 2008, I think. And uh, and his big keynote address at, at that point, and that's like nine years ago now, 10 years ago, was uh, he's working with all these Harvard students. And what he finds most fascinating is that their conversations with him is, I will do whatever it takes to get to the very top. Mm. It doesn't matter how I get there as long as I get there. Right. And he said, that's an issue. That's an issue that we have to face right now, which mm -hmm. is which brings back to that empathy, that caring, that uh, nurturing environment of respect and responsibility for students. And I think, uh, in my mind, that can't ever be put to the wayside. I mm -hmm. think that's that's a crux to what a school can bring for students is giving them the chance to explore what it means to be a part of this community. And we actually just heard that from Lori really well. Oh my goodness, she had so many great examples of bullies turning around and seeing just being kind of given a mirror of like this is what it looks like when you act that way you know what does it mean for you to be a part of our classroom our society you know your civic responsibility there uh, and we just happen to have the chance of doing that under the umbrella of Jesus as being our major mentor mm -hmm. and our model at our school got it so perfect segue into uh, again question number five um, so Dr. Roger Sperry who's a Nobel Prize winner and 
doctor of zoology, um, noted in 1973, quote, our education system, as well as science in general, tends to neglect the nonverbal form of intellect. Um, what it comes down to is, sorry, I'm turning a page here, that modern society discriminates against the right hemispheres. So my question to you is, in your experience, does education discriminate against the right brain in this way? And if yes, you know, why? And, and what do we do about it? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it does. And I think one of the big reasons for that is that um, the teachers who are teaching these students weren't taught in a right brain system. Uh, and that really creates a sense of discord. As an administrator, when I have uh, faculty who don't prioritize the uh, design elements or the the, um, the umbrella, the pedagogy, uh, they don't see this, they don't see it in equally important to the content that's being delivered, the information, the old traditional system of memorizing or mm -hmm. being able to have a pacing calendar with breadth rather than depth, which is what Lori also talked about in the last segment. Uh, you know, when they don't see that, why? Because, and it's not to their fault, they grew up in a system that they believe worked, that got them into good college that got them a job and they want the same thing for their kids, which, boy, doesn't Ted Dindersmith talk about that really well in his um, How Likely to Succeed uh, movie. Most Likely to Succeed. Most Likely to Succeed movie. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like, that's so hard to break those barriers down. Uh, right. It's it's like, um, how do we, yeah, how do we enable teachers how do we, as adults, like I can't wait for a generation who has gone through, I hope, some right-brained education system. Amen. Because if jobs are really requiring this, uh, if jobs are looking at the design, the creative processes as being the driver for how they're employing people, can they think differently? How can they collaborate and communicate and work with other people? Uh, but also how can they just, you know, pull things apart instead of just put things together. And it's like, uh, or rather the opposite, right? Uh, the analytical, but also the synthesis. I just wonder when does that trickle down to colleges on a more global scale? Like, yeah, sure. It's great that you know, Stanford can have admissions that doesn't look at certain scores or whatever, but we need more schools to have a more holistic approach Indeed. to accepting students. And I think there's a wave for that, but it's really still not here yet. And it makes it a really challenge, a real challenge for even the elementary teacher in our system to give equal uh, time to the right side as to the left side. So I, what I say is schools need to continue to build that environment mm. where it is safe for teachers to uh, integrate and collaborate with other teachers so that there is something more ingenuity, more original with, that's appropriate within this context. And a big part of that is making sure art teachers are part of those dialogues. Yeah, and you're really speaking to public, private, and charter schools. That's mm. a, a universal concept. Um, okay, Chris, so we're gonna take a short break and we're gonna come back with more insights in just a couple of minutes. So, hey audience, stay with us. We'll be right back. Purple Maya, our specialty is providing cultural-based programming to learn technology and computer science. We are always looking for teachers, volunteers, and schools to partner with. But our programs aren't only for Keiki. Heard of the Purple Prize? We're accepting applications now for Kamaka Inana, a design and venture ideation program for adults interested in creating solutions that positively impact the Pai Aina. It's about shaping the way Hawaii designs for the future. 
Visit us at purplemaya or purpleprize.com for more info. Also, how major is this podcast? Keep up the good work, guys. Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of EdTech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. Hey everybody, we are back with Chris Stapleton, the K-12 principal at the Asia Pacific International School on the North Shore of Oahu here in Hawaii. So Chris, um, you referenced earlier your mission statement for your school. So I'm actually gonna start this second half here, the, the second five questions by reading your mission statement out loud here. So your mission statement says, the Asia Pacific International School strives to educate its students in a loving and caring Christian environment to become globally enlightened citizens who are able to bridge the gap between East and West and are ready to welcome the exciting challenges of the new Pacific century. So here's question number six. From your perch as a former middle school teacher and former dean of students and now K-12 principal, what are the challenges of this so-called new Pacific century that you noted in your mission statement? I think understanding culture is a big one. Uh, Understanding the differences between the East and the West and in order to dive deeper in that, you need to be able to have a foot in both, right? Uh, so our students, I know that the that when I lived in Korea, that economy is booming. It is doing very well uh, and has great relationships with America. Uh, but I also live amongst, when I, I work with many different nationalities, but and specifically talking about Korean culture and the way they make decisions and that kind of um, the way they communicate about one family versus, you know, it's, it's very family oriented. It's very like, uh, and, and also save face oriented. And I, I really appreciate a lot of things about them, but it takes time to learn that about a culture. And I could imagine if somebody in the future who will absolutely have to deal with these different cultural roadblocks, uh, if, if they don't understand how to navigate those and be able mm-hmm. to uh, have uh, a real dialogue about something in a business place, in an education setting, in, when political place. <laughs> wow. Uh, if you don't understand uh, the East, if you don't understand China, Japan, Korea, 
Southeast Asian countries, if you don't understand how they they operate and how they think and that where they've come from, then you're at a real disadvantage in this world uh, because they are just they are just continuing to bloom and blossom and grow as economic powers. And uh, many of their students are coming to our you know uh, some our to American America and being a part of our school systems and and being a part of our jobs. And it's really important to I think it's I think it's great. I think it's it's crucial for students to from both sides. And I, right. I, I just said that from one perspective. It is also so important from the other perspective. And that's why as a boarding school, uh, having those uh, students from all over the globe, from Europe, from East Asia, uh, be able to come to our school and then have local students also there. Uh, wow, the cultural exchange mm -hmm. that happens is so powerful. And that really helps bridge the East and West. We actually have 50 of our middle school students from our Seoul campus come to our campus in Hawaii for three weeks and have that cultural exchange happen. And we have our students from here go to Korea for a week and a half and have that exchange happen. And uh, it's, it's crucial that that happens so that in this day and age where people fly different places just to have jobs, like you don't no longer are just working in a small area, you can work very much across seas. Jobs might expect you to work all over. Yeah. Uh, you need to have a better understanding of, of the cultures uh, that you're you're going to be a part of. That's a that's a great segue to question number seven. We're doing good, Chris, in these segues, right? We've had yeah, quite a few of them. My goal is already provide good transitions. So, question number seven is: I'm going to quote your school director yeah. um, here and his message yeah. on your website. Mm -hmm. So he says, "Quote: A student from our Hawaii campus could spend a semester yeah. studying at sure. the Seoul campus, taking advantage of its East Asian language program, and interning at an IT lab in Korea." Mm -hmm. A student from our Seoul campus could come to Hawaii to do research projects yeah. on eco-farming, natural resource management, and marine biology and conservation. Mm -hmm. So the question is, like, first of all, wow, like yeah. this is awesome, yeah. um, at least in concept, right? So this is super exciting, Chris. So in what ways is this cross-hatching happening, and what results are you seeing in terms of student engagement? Yeah, and I, I just want to do one plug in here. Our director, that's his story. Uh, he came over from Korea to New York as a young student, f went straight into an education system that wasn't well suited for students who were learning English, but then still made it through and did an amazing job, went to Dartmouth, and then and then he realized that he had a real leg up in the world understanding East Asian culture mm. and understanding the West. And that's where this all comes from is that he lived this life and realized, oh my goodness, I have a real advantage here by understanding both of them mm. in an economic sense, really. Uh, but then it trickles down into other sectors as well. Uh, so anyway, just want to do that plug in because it goes back to why we have yeah, the mission sure. statement that we do. Um, yeah. we. It is much easier because we're a boarding school and our international school in Seoul is not a boarding school. It's really easy for students to come over to our school for a semester. Uh, we've seen students be able to uh, dive really deep into microbiology, uh, marine sciences, agriculture. We're much more of a rural campus than our Seoul campuses. Uh, but we have had our students also head over to the Seoul campus and be a part of uh, what we consider to be a much more urban environment. Um, I really see it a lot more because I came over here when the Hawaii camps, campus started. So I know my stories at the Hawaii campus much more than I know the Seoul right. stories, uh, so to speak. But I can tell you that the students who are at our school, um, they really 
especially if they're coming from an urban environment, they really have a transformation because it, because of the place-based environmental education that they're receiving. Uh, and one of our students uh, was able to, the University of Hawaii has a campus up there, Windward Community College as well, uh, that we partner up with. And uh, she was able, she got really into Hawaiian native species and uh, she started a farm on our campus, which is beautiful uh, and it continues to grow. Uh, and then she got really into microbiology too. And so she married those ideas at, at Windward Community College, dove deep, and then when she graduated, she went to wow. Stanford, and she's at Stanford right now, and she's continuing down that same path, right, of, of uh, exploring uh, Hawaiian indigenous species and understanding kind of the roots of how uh, of how this place originally grew, fo grew food and also the, the flora and fauna here. Mm. Uh, so it's it's that's the kind of story that we're trying to uh, allow for our students to have the opportunity to, depending on their passion. Right. So, so in the, in the totality, then all of those bright lights, those specific stories, like the one you just referenced, yeah. then become sort of a fulfillment of the mission statement yeah. itself. That that you're cross hatching in that yeah. way and giving Absolutely. kids those opportunities. And I would say, I mean, it's not like we don't have tech options here too, right? I mean, Honolulu, right down the road from our school, right down the road, an hour drive from our school. But um, we have a student who uh, we do internships as part of our high school, you know, uh, curriculum and. And he interned over here at uh, Blue Hawaii, which is like uh, building these off off grid batteries. And he uh, yeah. he was he had such an impressive internship with them. They then hired him back for summer, right? And like that's what we're looking for. We're looking for students who are growing in areas uh, that they're passionate about, that they want to continue to grow in, uh, and and it's authentic. It's as authentic as it gets. And then they're actually working on their off times on those same projects. Awesome. So Chris, for question number eight, I'm, I'm actually going to dig a little bit deeper into specifically your position as the principal of, of the K-12 continuum um, at Asia Pacific. So it was super fascinating for me to read your um, quote unquote academics at Asia Pacific page on your website. Um, if I were a parent, I would be pretty intrigued by the fact that your school appears to be developing a K-12 continuum which is often absent uh, on campuses with siloed elementary, middle, and high schools. So this is a moment for you to actually speak to other leaders at other schools, public, private, and charter, but really mostly private, I think. Um, what message do you have for other schools that are struggling to put in place a whole school K-12 continuum for their students? It is so powerful that? that when I have faculty meetings, I have everyone from my kindergarten teacher to my senior teachers mm. present. Mm. And I have to navigate what makes the most sense. What do I, what's the powerful components that impact everyone and what needs to be separate dialogues. Uh, but within that, I get to create the umbrella of pedagogy for everybody, or not just create, but I get to also help implement and also just kind of continue to provide resources for them to explore what learning looks like at APIS. Um, I think it is very different still to talk to, uh, especially elementary middle versus high school teachers on how they're implementing a more authentic curriculum uh, because when it comes down to it in high school, we have some pretty specialized courses uh, that in many ways feel like we have to get through certain academic content 
uh, because that's what's expected in academia. So if somebody is to continue, like my brother's a mathematician, a University of Kentucky professor, and he you know, went to MIT, he did all these great things, but he couldn't have gotten there if <laughs> he hadn't taken Algebra 2, which you're like, well, when, when do I ever use Algebra 2 in my life otherwise, right? Or a pre-calc or a calculus, calculus A, calculus B, whatever, all those things he had to have taken in order to continue to move down the academia route. Uh, but not all students are going to do that. Uh, mm, right. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is because when I'm trying to assist a high school teacher teaching hard sciences or math specifically and bringing that pedagogy, that project-based pedagogy, which, by the way, I have a certain qualm with the word project because it has a derogatory meaning for those of us who took had projects in, in elementary and middle school back in the day. Um, but that problem-based learning curriculum or this that, that deeper learning curriculum that we're trying to, uh, that pedagogy that we're trying to build as a school, it's really a different dialogue. It's like, okay, I'm teaching this specific thing in chemistry right mm -hmm. now about copper and then I'm talking to an, uh, you know, my kindergarten student teacher who's teaching about human body. And the way I can offer a pedagogical, uh, a more problem-based uh, pedagogical approach to each is tricky. It's tricky. It is. It is. Right. And I have to navigate it more carefully, it feels like, in a high school setting. So what I'm saying there is this. Um, it is good for everyone to hear what authentic learning looks like and how to tie things to essential questions and experiences and experts and exhibitions. And yes, even our chemistry class, and yes, even our pre-calculus class will have exhibitions at our school. So they do find ways of connecting what they're learning to something that is exhibitable. Uh, so I think that's really important to have certain expectations across the school, but my dialogue with them is so different. Uh, but I do think it's beautiful that I can, uh, I can help shape that mm. from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, uh, not just in school, but also programmatically or outside of school as well. Right, right. Um, so thank you, what you for what you said about algebra. I, Josh Rapun, I'm coming out today and telling everyone in the world that my hatred for algebra is beyond all bounds. Um, so much of my life was lost in algebra that I'll never get back. Um, so anyway, be that as it may, sorry for that slight side tangent. <laughs> um, so great segue, um, Chris, to question number nine. So your website mentions project-based learning as being at the heart of your school's culture. So the question is, how have you been able to get faculty, staff, parents, students, kind of speaking a common language about PBL so that it's not some sort of confusing tower of sure. linguistics. Sure. Uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things when you can found a school on this pedagogy. Right. What other schools are saying that, right? Because so many are trying to adopt parts of it. Right. But we founded our school on this pedagogy here in Hawaii. So from the very beginning, the Bucks Institute was a part of what we were. Yeah. From the beer, you know, we got PBL works Robert now. Cool, yeah. one of the high tech high leaders, he came over and was a principal for one of the years at our school. Yeah. Uh, so, and he brought so much expertise in this area of what it looks like and connecting dots that we were still navigating as a school uh, to where we feel like, okay, like we see who we are and we see the elements that are necessary to provide the most authentic curriculum. And we're still navigating some of those pieces. Authenticity doesn't mean we're 
impact of the world always. Right. Authenticity can come in the context you're providing for students. Authenticity can come in the tasks, the tools that they're using. Authenticity can come in the personal experiences of those students, not just the impact of the world. So uh, that's something that feels the most, maybe, maybe one of the biggest obstacles to teachers is when we say PBL, um, they might say, I don't know how I'm going to change the world this year. And it's like, well, that's a that's a big jump to make. You know, you don't need yeah. to change the world. There's a lot of ways of providing authenticity yeah. in where we're at. Uh, the other one of the other biggest hurdles here is the word project, which I, I mentioned just a little bit ago there, uh, because a teacher thinks, oh, OK, I'm going to have one project on the side for one period a day where I'm going to do that. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. We right. don't care about projects like that's not what this is. This is about deeper learning, building that umbrella of authenticity, personalization, and integration, allowing teachers to work together, providing a flexible environment for teachers to work together so that something greater is achieved. So I can give you countless examples of this. Uh, let me just give one example of this. Uh, a heroes unit uh, that our, our grades five and six did together. Uh, they were looking at how how are people heroes? And what are the traits of heroes? Okay, mm -hmm. those are their essential questions that are building everything off of it. Then they say, okay, what experts can be a part of what we're studying here? Okay, so we're gonna talk, we're gonna interview. So that's their interviewing skills, journalism ideas there. We're gonna interview firefighters, local firefighters, and ask them specifically, like, why did they get into that profession? Okay, uh, but then they're also doing research. Right? So they're going to research specific figures of history that they've chosen, student voice and choice, and they're going to uh, research specific things about them and then team up with the art teacher to create uh, kind of comic books of these heroes of mm. history wow. uh, that they're going to exhibit. But that just touches the surface of authenticity because, yeah, we've talked to firefighters. That's great. We've got some experts. We've got some integration here with the art teacher where we're building in a collaborative process here. We're outside of their core class, they're also doing this. Uh, but then it was, you know, how can we become heroes, right? What, what kind of things can we do to become heroes right now? Well, that's an overwhelming question to ask to a student because uh, not everyone has Malala's incredible story, right? Mm, yeah. uh, so then they said, well, well, one thing we could do is, you know, we live next to an ocean. How scary is it that kids go swimming things could happen. So what if we were CPR first aid trained ourselves? So they invited a CPR first aid trainer and they then had that person lead multiple lessons in that. And when it came time for exhibition, yeah, their, their comic book stuff were there. Definitely the firefighters were you know, shown off. But in addition, they, they led groups of everyone who was there, parents, families, kids, in different lessons on how to save somebody's life, how to wow. perform CPR, what kind of, what do you do for a deep wound bandage uh, situation, which could easily happen in our environment where we live. And it was, it wow, was so powerful. A, and that's a deeper learning deep dive. That's what we're looking for, for uh, sure. on a regular basis. And we, we often have it, so. That's awesome. Um, okay, so we have arrived at question number 10. Okay. And in your case, Chris, I actually invited someone else to ask this question. Um, so my good friend, Robert Landau, who's the head of school at Maui Prep, sure. and who's um, a coach's coach um, and was the former um, executive director for the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, um, and also has a long history in international schools Absolutely, in Asia and also in Switzerland. Absolutely. So I reached out to Robert. Um, and so... I know that your school supports the Global Issues Network, mm -hmm. um, a.k.a. JIN, mm -hmm. um, here in Hawaii and at your campus in Korea. So Robert's question was, what is JIN? 
And how does it support schools' approach to project-based, problem-based, challenge-based teaching and learning? But I'm going to tack on my own part to Robert's question, mm -hmm. which is because we're at the end and I want to ask the same question of everybody, mm -hmm. I want to fold into it. What could school be? Sure. Awesome. Sure. Um, the Global Issues Network uh, is a chance for students to not just explore and create projects or not projects, uh, solutions or ideas for how they can help better the world, but they also do it locally, which helps. Uh, and it's very student driven. It's just so student driven. In fact, uh, the GIN network, uh, the GIN uh, big what is it called? Pre Infrastructure, it, yeah. Or even their big meeting later this year uh, mm. is all run by students, uh, which is so powerful. Mm. Um, and our students in the past have specifically, one of, one of the projects I remember is uh, creating evacuation plans uh, for our community in Ha'ula uh, because we're in a tsunami evacuation zone. Actually, our school is the tsunami evacuation zone. Uh, so they helped our school create a plan for what would happen in the case of not just tsunamis, but all, all different natural disasters. Uh, and then they met with the community leader uh, and, and group and presented their plan and, and, and it's ongoing conversations. Even now in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be meeting again. Uh, mm -hmm. And those students have already graduated, but what they've had, what they've done for us continues to live on. Uh, so I kind of find it as a possible capstone culminating experience or just a part of their journey in high school for uh, tapping into issues globally, but also locally, and how can they be a part of, of solving those uh, issues. Um, so uh, as far as what school could be, is that the question? It is. Okay. What school your could last be? last question. Um, okay. So personally, uh, I, I believe school uh, is opportunity, um, and that's, I could end there. Uh, but I, I believe that it's a place where uh, relationships are founded uh, that will impact children forever. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I remember my teacher, I wrote in that year, I'm gonna be a fifth grade teacher when I grow up. And in the yearbook, you can still see it there. And I was a fifth grade teacher when I graduated from college. Uh, teachers can make a difference and, uh, and they can make a difference for students to have other student relationships too. Um, and that's, that's as powerful as any because I find in this abundant world where we have so much in this first world that we live in, uh, students have a hard time finding purpose. Uh, and, and a lot of that is they don't understand what's coming at them. Uh, they're not ready and prepared for those changes, but mo majority of that is the relationships that they have. Uh, so I think it is most important that schools continue to provide opportunity and relationships. I think they need to provide opportunity for students to understand that this is a global, like this world is getting smaller all the time. Um, and if we can provide opportunities to, for students to live somewhere else and study somewhere else, or at least explore other places uh, at an earlier age, I think it gives them a leg up uh, when they get down the road there, I think. I think there's, we have a micro school we built in Hawaii. Why? Because the West, East and West, what's the center of East and West? Hawaii, right? Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a great place to, to be able to study both sides of the equation. Uh, and what's to say, why not start more campuses other places so that we just continue to have locations where students can study and see that the world is much smaller than they think. Opportunity, relationships. Chris Stapleton, principal at the Asia Pacific International School on Oahu in Hawaii. It's been a blast having you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. 
to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is Lori Kui, a 4th grade teacher at Alavai Elementary School. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, February 22nd. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode is Marlon Utrero. Our post-production student manager is Mae Kanata, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.